We're in a series called The Heart of Jeremiah, and we're looking at the, the prophet Jeremiah, both the, the, the man and the book that he wrote. And, you know, all throughout the book of Jeremiah, just over and over and over again, you see him talk about the heart, the heart of the people Israel, the heart of the people Judah, and the heart of God. And so we're, we're really focusing in on that in our series. And last week, Ryan started us off, and he, and he you know, was teaching us about Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, and it's the reason he was called the weeping prophet is because he watched the Ravens game last night. (laughs) Too soon? (laughs) Too soon, okay. (laughs) No, but he, what, the real reason is that he, uh, he saw his own people kind of careening off of a, of a cliff, and he saw the impending doom coming because of their action, their disobedience. And he kept calling them back and calling them back and delivering the word of the Lord, and they wouldn't listen. And this wasn't, don't picture, you know, Ryan talked about last week, don't picture like an old man with a gray beard. When Jeremiah was called, he was a young man. And, and he stayed in it for a long time. He, he prophesied the fall of Jerusalem and Judah through the reigns of three different kings. Three different kings he's calling for repentance. And so last week we talked about a heart that had strayed and, and, and Judah, their, their hearts had become hardened even though they had seen in the north, Israel was sent into captivity by Assyria. 150 years they continued in rebellion. So their heart was hard, stubborn, rebellious. You know, the Bible calls it an uncircumcised heart a sick heart, a deceitful heart. So this week, we're going to shift gears and not look at the heart of the people, but we're going to look at the heart of the Father. We're going to look at the heart of God for his people. And let's start in Jeremiah 7. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, that was the, that was the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, Then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. You can hear the the father heart of God in this. Where he's like, look, I don't want to punish you guys. What I want is for you guys to turn. I don't want you to continue in sin. And so, so if I have to punish you to bring you away from sin, because that's what's best for you, then I'll do it. But I don't want to. I want you to live in this land forever and ever and ever. That's my heart for you guys. He continues, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And Jesus actually quotes that line in the New Testament, you might recognize it, when he is frustrated with what's happening in the temple in his day. 
See, they thought because they were the chosen people of God, they were good to go. They thought because they were still offering sacrifices, they were good to go. They thought they could live in disobedience and they were good to go. That because they were the chosen people of God, nothing could harm them. Jeremiah continues in verse 18. He says, the children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. Now, the queen of heaven was a Babylonian title for Ishtar, also sometimes called Anat or Ashtoreth. She was a goddess in the Babylonian pantheon. So what he's saying is the whole family's gotten involved. Like the kids are gathering the wood, the, the, the dads are lighting the fires, the, the moms are baking the cakes, and all of you are worshiping these pagan gods. He continues, they pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger, but am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Again, God mentions that disobedience really, you know, God says, I don't like it when you're disobedient, but mainly because it hurts you. Mainly, it causes damage to you. Mainly, sin hurts us. And that's why it hurts the, the father heart of God. Like, what is our measly little sin to God? It's really that it's damaging us. And that's what concerns the Lord so much. Notice his heart here in Jeremiah 8. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. Did you know that when you're crushed, and by that he means Israel was inflicting wounds on themselves because of their own sin and their own disobedience. God feels that too. He feels crushed when we're crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. This is the Lord talking. He mourns, he grieves. It hurts him when things hurt us. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. This morning, some of you may have come in with like a view of God where he's very sort of authoritative, very domineering, right? And, you know, he loves to inflict punishment. That's just, that's just not, that's not the father heart of God. God is holy and he's awesome. And when we get in his presence, we will drop to our face and we'll pray, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. But listen, his heart breaks for us. He weeps for us. Did you know that that's your God? That you have a God that weeps for you? That's the heart of God. So number one, here's God's heart for his people. God's heart breaks over their sin because of the harm it causes them and others, right? As parents, we know this feeling. We want our kids to obey the rules, but mainly because of, of what it does for them and how, how, it, you know, how they might treat other people. It's not about our rules. You know, when it's time to go to bed, it's time to go to bed not because of some arbitrary desire for me to inflict punishment on my kids. It's time to go to bed because I know what's best for my kids is that they get sleep. And honestly, what's best for me is that they get sleep. <laughs> because tomorrow is coming. I don't want them cranky. Or I'll be cranky. No one wants that. 
And then God calls the people to repentance. So the people are straying, they're in rebellion, they're worshiping other gods, and it breaks God's heart. And so his response is not to punish them. His response is that his heart breaks first, and then secondly, he calls them back. He says, look, I don't want bad things to happen to you. Come on back. Come on back. And he gives them time and time again to repent. Jeremiah 26, it says, this is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. And listen to this. This is the heart of the Father. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from their evil ways. Then I will relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they had done. Look, they they were sacrificing their own children in the fire to the god Molech. They were, they were offering and doing these sort of horrible pagan rituals in their offerings to pagan gods. They were doing evil things. And God's like, I, I can't have my people continue in this. But before disaster comes, would you repent? Would you turn around? Would you come back to me? And I'll relent. As parents, we don't like to punish our kids. I don't like to punish my kids. I don't, I don't like to do it. I know it's necessary if I'm going to be a good father. We've seen plenty of kids out there where they've received no discipline. And teachers have to deal with that, right? It's ugly. Teachers are like, oh, amen, amen. Preach it, brother. Right? It's hard. So if I'm a good father, I'm going to discipline my kids. But here's the thing. I don't want to do that. I, what I'd rather my kids do is just turn and do the right thing, right? That's the father heart of God. In fact, he says it to another prophet in Ezekiel. This is the word of the Lord through Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 18, he says, this is God speaking. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This is what God wants. He wants us to turn. He wants his people to turn and live. I love this. He says, so do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. I mean, that to me, that's just like, that's parenting 101, right? It's like, I will discipline you, not too much, but you're not going to get away with this. You're not going to go unpunished. And even after that, I'm going to call you back. I'm going to bring you back into the land. My heart is still for you. And so the third thing we see from God's heart is that God disciplines them with punishment. So first, his heart breaks over their sin. Then he calls them to repentance, and they ignore him. And he says, okay. I have to do discipline here because I'm a good father, and that's what good fathers do. And his discipline in the Old Testament is punishment for Israel. And it's a little different in the New Testament. We'll look at that in just a second. Finally, God promises restoration. He says, after I discipline you, I will bring you back. See, I will bring them from the land of the north, gather them from the ends of the earth, Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. He's talking about the people returning to Jerusalem. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. 
So he's like, yes, I'll discipline them, but look, I'm going to bring them all back. They're going to come back to the land I promised them because I'm their dad. This same language here, verse 20. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. This is the heart of God towards his people. Compassion, fatherly love. Man, some of us didn't have great examples as fathers. So when, when I use the father analogy, when scripture uses the father analogy, it doesn't, it's not helpful for us. But what we have to picture is the best father we've ever known. And this is the father heart of God. And God's heart for us is a similar pattern. God's heart breaks over our sin because of the harm it causes us and others. Right? He doesn't want us to continue in sin because of the way it dehumanizes us, because of the way it damages our heart, because of the way it damages our body, because of the way it damages our relationships, the way it hurts other people. And so God calls us to repentance when he sees that there's sin in our life. In Ephesians 4, it says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Did you know you can grieve the Holy Spirit? I want you to stop and think about somebody who's dealing with grief, someone who's lost something. Picture them, right? They're in mourning. They're hurt. They feel loss. We can cause that in the heart of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Think about how much God must love us to make himself vulnerable enough to allow us to harm him. Do you think anything can harm God? Nothing can unless God says, I'm going to let it. I'm going to open myself in vulnerability. And actually, your sin, I'm going to let grieve my heart. See, God could go around and have nothing affect him whatsoever. He's God. But he so loved you that he decided he was going to be that vulnerable with you. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this, these are the kind of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of all bitterness. That means we've got to forgive people. Rage, anger, brawling, and slander. That means we've got to be careful about how we speak about people. Along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. See, our sin grieves the heart of God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. So he calls us to repentance. And this reminded me of, you know, as we grow in a relationship with Christ, what you're going to find is that there's different motivations to be obedient to the Lord. There's kind of like a growth pattern that happens. We do what God wants us to do because, first of all, it's what we're told to do, especially when we're kids. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. This is just where you have to start. We do what God wants us to do because it is what we're told to do. And that's where it all begins for us as we, as we sort of learn how to follow Jesus. And it's because we don't want to get in trouble. But understand that the motivation for obeying God in this way is rooted in fear, and we have to grow beyond that. We have to grow beyond our motivation for obeying God as something like fear. We're afraid we're going to get in trouble by God. But it's okay if we start there. Let me give you an example. If I tell my kids not to touch the hot stove, 
Am I okay with them obeying just because if they touch the hot stove, they'll get in trouble? Yeah, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay. If, if the only reason you obey is because you're afraid you're going to get in trouble, at least you don't burn your hand. So initially, I'm okay with that. But if that's where my kid stays, when he's 5, 6, 7, 8, and then when he's 13, 15, when he's 20, when he's 50, if he's still, you see what I'm saying? At some point, you got to grow beyond obedience out of fear. And I think the next phase is this. We do what God wants us to do because it is what we're supposed to do. In other words, it's because it's the right thing. We have this sense of right and wrong. And so we obey because, man, that's just the right thing to do and that's the wrong thing to do. And what I'm saying is that's good, but we're not at the gospel yet. If you think this is the gospel, we're not there yet. What this is is law. So it's good because, again, if my kids only obey the whole touching, not touching the hot stove thing because it's one of the rules of the house and they know that's the right thing to do, hey, I'm fine with it because at least their hand doesn't get burned. But if they stay in that place, if they never move beyond it's a rule and I have to follow it, then they haven't gotten to the gospel yet. Do you know what the gospel is? The good news of Jesus Christ comes down here at the end. We do what God wants us to do because it is what we want to do. Our very desires have changed at the core of who we are. What we want is what God wants. What God wants is what we want. We are in alignment with his heart. And it's because we don't want to grieve the Lord. See, this isn't about fear and this isn't about law. This is about relationship. This is motivated out of love. The reason why I want to obey the Lord is because I am in an intimate love relationship with him that is interactive. And the last thing I want to do is hurt him by my sin. So my desires, I want to align with his desires. My obedience comes from a place of love. You guys with me on this? This is the Christian life. This is the fullness of the Christian life. This is where we're headed. This is maturity. And this is what this verse means. In 1 John 4, 18, when it says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. What is that verse talking about? What it's saying is your motivation for obedience, if you're in the fullness of the gospel, it comes from a place of love. It doesn't have to do with fear. It doesn't have to do with punishment. It has to do with your love relationship with the Father, that you receive his love. And you love him in return. And obedience is born out of that. All right. So if we don't repent, if we don't obey, if we don't turn back, then God will discipline us. But not with punishment, guys. With training in righteousness. And this is the biggest difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. God made a covenant marriage with Israel. Israel divorced God. God said, I'm going to do a brand new marriage and it's going to be a different marriage than the last marriage. This time I'm going to marry you, and our contract, it won't be a contract anymore. It'll be a covenant, and it'll be a new covenant. And this is the big difference between Old and New Testament. God still disciplines us because he's a good father. If he's a good father, he better discipline us, but it's no longer with punishment. Let me tell you why. See, this is, the, this is the heart of God towards his people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. In Jeremiah 25, he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath 
and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So this is Jeremiah saying this. So then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. In other words, the imagery, the prophetic imagery here is my punishment looks like a bowl, a cup of wine, and the wine is my wrath. And because of their sin, I'm going to have them drink this cup. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is towards the end of his life. He gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's agonizing because he knows what's coming. And he's hours away from the cross. And his disciples have fallen asleep. And in Mark 14, it says, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What is he talking about? Did he just bring some extra wine with him? You know, like you guys do at work? Just kidding. Just kidding. What's he talking about? What cup? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. He's saying, look, I know that sin deserves punishment. But here's the thing. Here's the father heart of God. Let this sink in, guys. God got tired of punishing sin. He got tired of it. Parents, don't you get tired of it? He said, I'm done with punishing sin. I don't want to do it anymore. I know it hurts my people when I punish them for their sin, and I'm tired of it. So you know what I'm going to do? Sin has to be punished, or he's not a good father. So what does he do? He says, I'll take it then. It has to be punished, but I'll take the punishment. I'll take it upon myself. I'll drink the cup. So he said, Jesus, my son, you are in me. I am in you. I need you to drink the cup. Even though you've never sinned, I need you to drink the cup for all of humanity. Why would God do that? This is what he did. Isaiah 53, another prophet, talks about it. He's talking about Jesus. He's prophesying of what Jesus would do. In Isaiah 53, he says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him what? Punished by God stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He said, I'm tired of punishing my kids. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to pay the price for them. I'm going to pick up the tab for their sin. And I'm going to lay it on my son, and my son is going to drink the cup for all of us. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And you know what this allowed God to do? 2 Corinthians 5 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. How can God do that? That seems unjust. I mean, if he's a good father, if he's a just God, he would count people's sins against them. If someone murders someone else and they go into court and the judge just goes, eh, it's okay, you're good. That's injustice. How could he not count our sins against us? It's because he laid the punishment for our sin on Jesus. 
And so now he doesn't have to count people's sins against them. This is the good news, guys. Look, and he committed to us the message of reconciliation. Did you know that's what we go around the world telling people about? I've got great news. This is why we call it good news. God's not counting your sin against you. Wait, 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 wait. Are you sure? No, I'm sure he's not counting your sin against you. He saw every one of your sins and didn't count it against you. He's not holding it over your head. Here's, here's, here's some more good news. He's not going to punish you for it. What? Yep. He's not going to punish you for a single sin that you do. He punished his son for all of your sins and mine. That's some love right there. That's powerful. This is the good news of the gospel. His discipline is training, though. He will discipline us. It just won't be punishment anymore. So we still get disciplined. Here's what Hebrews calls it in Hebrews 12. He says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? In other words, because he's a good father, even though he's not going to punish you, he will still discipline you. And this is what it looks like. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know, athletes talk about discipline too. But when an athlete says, I'm going to be disciplined, he doesn't mean I'm going to be sent to my room. What does he mean? He means I'm in training. If an athlete is disciplined in their sport or in their, you know, whatever activity, in their running, whatever, they're they're training their body. They're training their mind. That's another use of the word discipline, right? So God says, I'm going to do away with discipline as punishment, and discipline from now on for my people will be training in righteousness so that my people can share in my holiness so that they can actually live a holy life here on the earth. But I know that they need to be trained in order to do that. So I will discipline them, but it'll be like training. And sometimes God will allow us to experience the natural consequences of our sin as a kind of training in righteousness. It's not that he lets us get off scot-free in terms of, okay, we sin and there's no natural, there's always natural consequences to our sin. But understand that God is not punishing you. That is training in righteousness. Listen, if I tell my kid over and over again, don't touch the hot stove, how many knows one of the best things I can do after a bunch of that didn't work is, please touch the hot stove. What is that? Am I mean? Am I awful? I'm training in righteousness. My, my, my kid will learn real fast. They will experience the natural consequences of disobedience. And they will not touch that stove again. That is God's discipline. That is training in righteousness. But the punishment is gone. There is no punishment. There's no God up there going, oh. He put that on his son forever. He's done away with punishment. So here's God's heart for us, guys. First of all, when we sin, God's heart breaks. Then he calls us to repentance. And then if we don't come back in repentance, we may experience discipline in the form of training, training in righteousness. And then God always, always, always promises restoration. At the end of it, he always says, come home, come home, come back. I'm here. My arms are open wide. The prodigal son, right? And no verse does better at this than Romans 8. 
So when I read this, I want you to think about God's heart for you, the Father heart of God. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? In other words, if you're feeling condemnation, it's not God. Let me say it again. If you're feeling condemnation, that voice in your head is either you or the enemy, but it's not God. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or anything that you're going through? Will any of that separate us from the love of God? And the answer is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and I love that Paul says this. Are you convinced? Paul says, I don't have any doubt. I'm not a little bit uncertain. I have zero uncertainty. I have zero doubt. I am completely convinced of the next truth I'm about to say. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing Nothing, nothing that can separate you from his love. Not your past, not your future, not your sin, not your mistakes, not your doubt. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from God's heart for you. We can't out the grace of God and our sin can't ruin God's love for us. The punishment that brought us peace is on Christ. You can't out the grace of God. Don't try, please. But what you'll find at the end of that road is you still have not come to the end of his grace. What you'll find at the end of that road is you still have not come to the end of his love for you. It keeps going. So are you convinced? Are you convinced of his heart for you? Are you convinced of his love for you? And if you are, then I say run to him. Whatever you're going through, run to him. His arms open wide. He's calling you back. He's calling you to repentance. He's saying, come on back. I'm always here for you. My heart is open wide for you. As the worship team comes on up here to lead us in one last song, I just want to pray for us. If you have any questions, you can text that number. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your heart. We're so grateful that you love us with such intensity that when our heart breaks, your heart breaks. That when we weep, when we mourn, when we grieve, your heart grieves. 
We're so grateful that our sin, our sin is so small compared to your grace. That you love us, you call us home with arms open wide. Right now, Father, I just pray that you would pour out your love on every person in this room through your Holy Spirit, that they would just experience the intensity of your love, your heart for them. And God, I want to be convinced that nothing can separate me from you. God, if there's any part of my heart that's not convinced, Lord, convince me. Show me. Open my eyes. God, I want to be convinced that nothing can separate me from your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.